Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. A little awkward, a little awkward when I realized the problem. So, do you guys stand when we read scripture together? Or what's, what's, the, what's the, I'm not trying to rein, reinvent the wheel or anything like that, but let's, we're going to read a lot of scripture, but we're going to start in the book of Jeremiah this morning in chapter 23. I'm going to read from the prophet Jeremiah. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God to give us uh, insight into his word. Father, we thank you that you speak to us with clarity, with power in your word. Jesus, we ask that by your grace, this word would be for us and not against us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us to live in response to your truth by the grace that you've poured into our hearts. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, I get the joy and the privilege today to uh, speak to you about the righteousness of God and it's it's uh, fortuitous that we get to, to do this right around the time of the, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so I got my homeboy just kind of sitting on deck. We're going to get to him. He'll, he'll come up. He's got, a, he's got a word or two to say. I just want to do a little background first. I know we started in the book of Jeremiah, but I, it would be a little misleading to, to go like smack dab into the center of the Bible and pull out a verse and pull out, you know, this name of God, this characteristic of God, and to think it hangs there in midair, it doesn't. As God reveals his name and his character, all of these things happen within this framework, this context. The way that God has seen fit to reveal himself to his people is primarily through his word. And amongst other things, the word is a drama and a narrative and a story that that all coheres and holds together. So when we hear about the righteousness of God or the Lord our righteousness, it is within this framework of unfolding drama and the God revealing himself, you know, against this backdrop of this story of, of Israel, of his dealings with Israel. So I want to back up a little bit um, and I actually want to get into the book of Deuteronomy just to, just to provide preface Normally, I don't know if you see a lot of verses up on the screen. There's just too much today. We're not going to be. It won't all fit on the screen, and it's just unfair to ask Rich to change slides like every two seconds. So I'm going to try and give you a heads up. If you want to follow along, that's fine. If you want to just listen to, I think that's also very, very valuable. So the basic, when you think about the basic plot line and the unfolding of Scripture, you have this in the beginning. You have this creation. You have this world that's made by God and and it's called good and very good. And it is this majestic and splendid and wonderful place. And the scene is set, it's just piercing beauty and glory. And then it enters into the scene sin and rebellion. And you have bloodshed and you have violence and you have disloyalty. And you have this broken, this brokenness in creation through sin and rebellion. And you have God 
continuing to wrestle with the people that he made. And he enters into relationship with this man, Abraham, and he calls him into relationship with himself through covenant. And he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless you. And that blessing is going to overflow from your life and the life of your children and your offspring. And it's going to spread throughout the entire face of the earth. And all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through you. And God is revealing himself to Abraham and his offspring and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Rachel. And a lot of the names of God that we've looked at in this series have come out of these, this narrative of God working out and revealing himself and teaching a people. And these people end up enslaved in Egypt. And God goes into Egypt and he rescues them with mighty deeds of deliverance. And he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And he builds on that relationship and he starts to unfold this covenant, which is like a a binding, legal, official, you know, terms of relationship. This is how we're going to live. I'm, I'm still going to be your God, and you're still going to be my people, but this is how we're going to work it out. This is how we're going to live together. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, you have Moses, God speaking to the people through Moses. He's addressing the people, and he says this, starting in verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land, that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous is all this law that I set before you today? God is portraying a vision at this this scene when his people are on the border of this land that has been promised and has been long awaited. And they're on, they're just on the cusp. They're on the gateway and they're about to walk in and take possession of this land. And God is holding out this vision to them. This is see all this instruction, all this law, all these, this teaching, these commandments, this Torah that I'm setting before you. If you walk in this, it's going to be wisdom for you. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be wise in dealing with one another, in dealing with your neighbors. And it said it's going to bear witness to the people surrounding you because they're going to hear what's going on. They're going to see what's going on in Israel and they're going to be drawn to it. They're going to say, what a wise people. How close these people are with their God. And that's if, that's if God's people would walk in obedience to his word. That's if that they would live in conformity to his, to his teaching, to his Torah. It said it's going to be righteousness for you. So that's that term. That's that term that we, we encounter. It's going to be righteousness. You're going to deal right with your neighbor. You're going to deal right before your God. You're going to deal right with one another. If you obey God's word, it's going to be righteousness. And it's a kindness. It's grace. God's giving of the law is gracious. We, all, we often have misconceptions about the Old Testament in general, and especially the law in particular, because we get back there and we start poking around and we see all this stuff about what parts of the animal can you offer on the altar and which parts do you throw on the, the trash heap and, you know, cleanness and uncleanness and all this weird stuff. We you know, we, we, we look at that and we kind of recoil like, what is all this weird, arbitrary, obscure regulations and traditions? And we think it's all like this, this law code that we have to follow and we'll never measure up. And it's just standing over us. But I want you to just bear in mind that at this point in the story, these people who have just come out of multiple generations of slavery and have no no experience in self-governance, 
And God's bringing them into a land. And this law, this teaching, this Torah is a kindness to them. It's going to provide order. It's going to protect them from lawlessness, protect them from chaos. And it's also meant to bear witness to the surrounding nations to say this this is a wise and understanding people because the Lord is in their midst and the Lord is righteous and the people are called to embody and reflect this righteousness of God. And so that brings us up, if we, if we run the story forward, it brings us up to, to Jeremiah's day where we started. The Jeremiah is speaking to the people in Jerusalem. And so these people, they've gone into the land, they've taken possession of the land and they've, they've established the kingdom and they, they moved in. There are multiple generations in the land. And um, this is where you kind of see a little bit of tension. Because when God gives the standard of righteousness to his people, it's not, there's not the automatic assumption that, that you're going to measure up to that. Right? When we know the right thing to do, we know how we ought to live, that's not exactly the same as automatically hitting that mark of automatically measuring up. So there's a kindness to God revealing his will to us and to the people of Israel, but there's also a bit of tension because once you have that, that standard, then it, it highlights how f- if you fall short. When you, when you break that standard, it bears witness against you. And, and Moses even says, you know, in Deuteronomy, he says, if you continue in chapter 9, only take, or in verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. There's a danger. There's a danger of forgetting. There's a danger of being smug, overly casual, throwing the instruction of God behind us and saying, we got it, we don't need it, we're, we're good. We can just slide through, we'll just coast through on this. So you move the tape forward, and you get into Jeremiah's time. And here's the question I want, to, I want us to just ponder as we listen. How is, how is Israel doing? Is she keeping faith? Is she fulfilling her vocation to be a light to the nations? Is she living in such a way as to put the righteousness of God on display? So we're going to go back to the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to just kind of take a little... A little, you know, we're going to fly low in a few places. And we're going to start in chapter 5. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read. We're going to jump and skip. We're going to read some more. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and who seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. You have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Continuing in verse 4. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they will know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. I'm going to move down to verse 7. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those that are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well fed. Lusty stallions, each name <coughs> for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I'm going to jump over to verse 28. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. 
the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? I'm going to jump to chapter 6 and pick up in verse 13. For from the, the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So Jeremiah is a prophet. And that means he's like an ambassador. He's a messenger from the king. Who is the king that he's representing? Who's the king? Y'all can say it. God. It's not the king in Judah. It's not some government official. It is the king of kings, the Lord. And unfortunately, Jeremiah, in his role as a prophet, he's got to deliver a message. And this message is, is bad news. It's bad news. Prophets with very good news and very easy, comforting words were quite popular in Jeremiah's time, and the only problem is, with, is that the message was false. I don't know if they, they just didn't have the sense to look around and see what was going on, or they didn't have the courage to just tell it like it is. But those who are supposed to speak on the Lord's behalf are supposed to speak God's words to the people are failing. There's a failure to tell the truth. So in verse uh, 31, chapter 5, in verse 31, it says, the prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests, the ones who are supposed not only to offer sacrifices, but are supposed to instruct the people and to administer justice according to the law, they, they go along with it. They follow suit. They don't want to make any trouble. But what about the people? The majority of the people, what about them? They won't go along with it, will they? They won't stand for this, will they? The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? From rich and poor, from every level and spectrum of society. Corruption, injustice, unrighteousness. And God in his righteousness says, shall I not punish the people for this? How can I stand by and do nothing? How can I let this continue? So the question that you ask yourself is, where should Jeremiah go? If he's got this message, if he's got this testimony from God, if he's got this word of diagnosis that's maybe unfavorable, but it's true, and the people need to hear it, and and the hope is that something will change, where should Jeremiah go? What about the king? Maybe if he gets a hearing in the halls of power, maybe if he talks to the person in charge, if he can speak truth to power, then maybe we can change things around. So in chapter 22... He has a message for the king of Judah. In in, uh, chapter 22, in verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him. I'm sorry, I was starting in the wrong place. Chapter 22, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter your gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their servants and their people, but if you do not obey these words, 
I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. That's the question. Will the king listen? Will the people listen? Will the so-called prophets listen? Will the priests listen? Do you remember the first words in the reading that we started with this morning? The first words of chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds. Woe to those who are watching over the flock. Woe to those who have been trusted to look out for the cause of the people. If you go in for a performance review at work and the first words out of your boss's mouth is woe to you, that's a bad sign. That's a real bad sign. And all of this to say one thing is that that God's people are in a bad way. The Jerusalem is in trouble and disaster is looming on the horizon. And that so this this portrait, this kind of comprehensive vision, and you could say Jeremiah is being hyperbolic and the, the all the rhetoric is over the top, but it, all of that is to get to the point that there's a failure of the community to embody righteousness and justice. There's structural injustice, but you don't just need better laws because you literally have the best law that came from the mouth of the Lord himself. You have God's word in the Torah. But the best law in the world doesn't matter if you're just going to ignore it and break it and cast it behind you. What about new leaders? What if you get new leadership? If you get new people in charge, maybe that can change things. But God's word says that they're all corrupt. The priest, the prophet, the king, and the people, from the greatest to the least. This is where the righteousness of God becomes problematic. Because if you see that God is righteous and his people are not, well, then that's a glaring contradiction that's, that's calling out for resolution. If you see that God is holy and his people are not, that's trouble. And so in the book of Jeremiah, and not just in Jeremiah, throughout like all the Old Testament prophets, there's kind of like this, this double vision. You have this this vision, and it's an elusive vision. You could almost say it's a dream of this kingdom that embodies righteousness and justice. And at the same time that you, you have this vision portrayed, you also have a kind of unflinching view of how God's own people, not just the wicked pagan nations that surround, but God's own people, how they fail to embody this. How they fail to measure up to this standard of righteousness and justice. And so you have this contradiction. Um, and if, for example, you're sitting here, you're thinking to yourself, this is not exactly what I was hoping to hear at church today about sin and wickedness and corruption, I give you fair warning that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Because, because when God makes a promise... And he says that I'm going to raise up for David a righteous branch. When he says I'm going to raise up from David's line a king who will rule wisely with justice and righteousness in the land, God keeps his promise. And that king's name is Jesus, the Christ. Christ is not a last name, it's a title. It means the anointed one. It means the promised one. It means the long-awaited one. And Jesus comes from the Father and He comes into the land and comes before the people. And in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus walks up onto the mountain like a new Moses, like a new lawgiver. And He he raises this cry from the prophets and He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you can imagine the people's hearts starting to rise up with hope and expectation, saying, yeah, 
yeah, we've heard about this justice and righteousness. We haven't seen it, but we've been longing for it. We hear about it in the law and the prophets, and we're longing for that day. And so you can imagine people's hearts starting to, starting to beat and flutter with hope and say, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one. And he also, he takes that standard of righteousness and he raises it even higher. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can imagine the people's hearts starting to drop and say, I thought this was the guy who was going to give us, who was going to deliver this righteous kingdom. And you just said that I'm excluded because I can't measure up. And you, you think about the coming of God's righteous king to his people and you wonder, how is he going to be received? Is he embraced and welcomed with open arms by the government leaders and the religious officials and even the masses of people? Is that how it goes? Is he welcome in with, with chants of kumbaya, my Lord, and, and, and welcome in, we're, we're just all one big happy family, let's hold hands. Is that how it goes? Is that how the story plays out? No, no, it's not like that. It's not like that. The coming of the righteous one into the world that he made, into a people that he came to save, it ends with, I guess what you would expect at this point with unrighteousness, with bloodshed, with tragedy. The unrighteousness of the people reaches a climax in the crucifixion of the Son of God. That is the supreme act of injustice. And if we think that we, as we sit here so many years later that we can pardon ourselves and say, well, I'm not, I'm not Pilate and I'm not Herod and I didn't play a part in that. I didn't stand in the crowds and call out for innocent blood. I just want you to know that these are people just like us. That they belong to the same human race that we belong to. And they're part of a world just like ours that murders the innocent. And um, I just want you to see that this, this is not just structural injustice. It's not just systematic evil. It's not just a few bad, wicked tyrants. It's all of humanity. As Jeremiah says, from the greatest to the least. All, all are corrupt. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Rome, he takes up this chorus of Old Testament voices from the prophets and the Psalms in Romans chapter 3. And he, he, he strings together like this summary indictment against not just some bad people, but against all of us. And he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And this, this is where we have to face the contradiction head on. And we have to face the fact that if God is, is truly righteous and we're unrighteous, then that spells trouble for us. If God is holy and good and we are sinful and evil, then how can we stand before him and expect anything other than punishment and condemnation? How can we ever say the Lord is our righteousness? That doesn't make any sense. And we let that weigh on us. Face that. Hear that. Feel the weight of that trouble. And that burden. How is it to be resolved? I'm going to keep reading in chapter 3 of Romans. In verse 21. But now. But now. 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, on the cross, this is where the righteousness of God goes from standing over against us to being for us. It goes from being a demand to a donation. And um, sorry. It's what, a Jesus, it's what Jesus achieved by his death on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement. He suffers our punishment. He bears our condemnation. He takes the weight. He, he, he takes God's righteous anger against our sin and injustice. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness and his standing before the Father. This is not something that some people need, but rather it says that all have sinned. This is not something that we can work hard to try to earn, but it is given by grace as a gift, and nobody earns a gift. The righteousness of God is donated to us and and it's worked out in us through the Holy Spirit. We, it's easy, and we maybe have a good track record of talking about being declared righteous. We have a good history of talking about justification, being declared righteous in God's sight by the blood of Jesus. And that's true. But maybe we don't have the best track record of the the second part which is also true, that we are also sanctified. We are also made righteous. Not just declared righteous, but we are made righteous. We are being made righteous by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures bear witness, and the historic church bears witness that it's both. It's both. Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could both be declared righteous and made righteous. And as, as the Apostle Paul, as he's walking through the gospel to the Roman church, he says, you know, again and again, he has to address all these misunderstandings. And, and these misunderstandings, and, and I take some comfort in the fact that a lot of them are very perennial. Because it says that, well, some of the misunderstandings that he has to address are, you know, well, if if our sinfulness shows off God's grace, then we should just keep sinning, right? And Paul says, no, no. So if we're not under this law, this regulation, and we don't have to try and perform to earn God's grace, then we should just keep sinning, right? No, no. That's, I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't be comforting, but it's just, it seems like a timeless you know, part of being a part of the body of Christ is that there's always this, this, uh, there's always this little voice inside of us that wants to, that we want somehow to excuse ourselves and be like, well, we can just keep on sinning, right? It's all good. No, no. We who are recipients of Christ's righteousness, we also receive the Spirit of God. We who have been declared righteous by faith in Christ, we walk and we live by the power of that Spirit and that righteousness is being fulfilled and worked out in us. I know 
Some of you have places to be before sundown, so I'm just going to say something brief. You know, it's hard to maybe talk about condemnation and justification and sanctification all in one Sunday morning. We're probably not going to we're probably not going to cover your favorite verse, okay, about sanctification. But since I'm here, I have the opportunity. I just want to say something real quick. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 1. Just in uh, verses 10 and 11. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want to camp out on that last verse on verse 11 for a little bit. When we think about the fruit of righteousness as something that grows from what Christ has given us, I think it helps put things in perspective. Um, it puts our, our works, if you will, in a new light. Whether these works are prayer, devotion, fasting, giving, acts of service, whatever it is, sometimes we can have this false notion that these are things that people do so that they can kind of make themselves seem super spiritual like it's some track meet and we're, we're all competing against each other to see who can get ahead the furthest and that we all, we might have the chance to win a trophy and be some spiritual athlete all-star. Um, I don't really think that's the proper notion of what, what goes on. Uh, sometimes we have the idea that these spiritual disciplines are like some exercise routine. Um, I don't think that's the right metaphor. And when we say spiritual disciplines, it's really just to say these are the ways and the means and the methods that the Holy Spirit is using to get at us and to work out what Christ has done in our hearts, in our lives. When we talk about, you know, whether we talk about growing in Christ-likeness, growing in holiness, growing in godliness. It's all the same thing. It's just the ways that the Spirit is trying to get at us and work on us and transform us and grow us up into maturity. And so if we think about this like going to the gym, that's a false notion. When we think about the works that the Spirit is using to, to grow us, I think it's a lot more like going to the doctor. Nobody who goes to the doctor three or four or time, five times a week is ever mistaken for being the pinnacle of health. When you talk about, I have a doctor's appointment every day of the week, people don't think, wow, you must be super healthy. In fact, they think the opposite. Boy, you are really ill. And that's a lot closer to the truth for us. We are very ill. If someone asks what's wrong with us, we ought to say quite a bit, quite a bit. And I'm trying to get better. And so when we talk about our righteousness, how we walk in righteousness, it's often misconstrued. These aren't activities for super spiritual people. These are activities for broken, sinful, wretched people that are trying to recover, trying to grow and be healed. It's for people who know their own sin. Who know that they're a mess. And they, and they know they need all the help we can get. And I think oftentimes, I mean, I, I'm not here every week. I don't know the ins and outs of your life. But I don't think that I'm unique. You know, oftentimes we struggle. And we, we, because we don't avail ourselves to the means and the methods that God is using to meet with us and to heal us. You know, we, and we think about, you know, walking in righteousness. And here's the thing. God has absolutely no need of your righteousness because he has his own. He doesn't need your righteousness, but your neighbor needs your righteousness. God doesn't 
need you to spend time in prayer, but it's very likely that your spouse may need you to spend some time in prayer. God doesn't need you to be patient, but your children need for you to be patient. God doesn't need your money, but Damascus Road Church has need of your money. And I say that as someone, I don't get a penny for any of this. Living hope needs your money. God doesn't need you to fast on a weekly basis, but it's quite possible that you live close to people who need you to learn how to say no to your flesh. That's the whole point. The point is not that we would make ourselves into some saints that everyone could admire, but it's so that God could, we would open our lives up for God to have full run and have full access and say, transform me. Do what you will. Fulfill the righteousness of Christ in me by the power of the Spirit. Just to close up, I think there's two ways, two ways where we can get this wrong. Two ways that we can, we can lose sight of the righteousness of God. And the first is this. In, um, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. Let's see if I, can get, if I can get there. Jesus tells a parable and he, he says, He told this parable because some people, in verse 9, it's down in verse 9, some people trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And you have this story of two men at prayer in the temple and one is a Pharisee. One keeps the law and probably fasts and gives of his money and, and does all the spiritual disciplines. And when he prays, he looks at this other guy who's a tax collector who's a notorious sinner and he lifts up his prayer to God and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this scoundrel here. And it's, maybe easy for us to dismiss that and be like, well, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee there. And we kind of miss the whole point. I want us to have maybe a little bit of sympathy for the Pharisee. And if you knew me better, that wouldn't surprise you. But when we look at the Pharisee and his, his outrage and his grief over the sin of the tax collector, you've got to make some you got to make some room for the fact that this tax collector, what he was doing was terribly wrong. And it was affecting everybody in the community. Every person that this tax collector took money from was getting oppressed by him. It might help us if we update the, the, the situation a little bit more and we think of the Pharisee as this very pious church grandmother and we think of the, the tax collector as someone who's selling drugs in the neighborhood. And this pious grandmother who spent her life in church, she knows that this guy is poisoning the whole neighborhood. And she knows that, that this guy has, has, has sold stuff to people and they've OD'd and, and, and they've, she's lost maybe nieces and nephews because of his sin. It's completely legitimate that she would be outraged by his sin. That's Expected. Sin is an outrage. The trouble is this. The trouble is if we forget, first and foremost, that we ourselves are sinners and we need God's mercy. It says that the tax collector, when he could, he couldn't even look up. He couldn't even lift his hands up, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that guy went home justified. That guy was declared righteous. It is completely appropriate that we would be outraged over other people's sins. But it's a danger and a denial of the gospel if we forget that first and foremost, we are the chief sinners. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. First, if we forget that God's righteousness is a donation to us and that we receive it by his mercy and his grace alone. The second part is this. 
if we surrender the language of sin and unrighteousness altogether and we reconstrue the gospel in merely therapeutic terms and we leave out sin, it's very, it's very easy and very tempting for when we talk about the gospel, we, we can talk about it and portray it in terms of you know, God's great love for us and God healing our brokenness and, and bringing us into his mission to heal the world and the Father lavishing his affection on us. And absolutely all of that is true. None of it is false. That's absolutely true. But if that's our presentation of the gospel and we stop there, we've left out something that's central. What is it? What have we left out? Sinners. You left out sin. Left out sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, when Paul's laying out the gospel to the church at Corinth, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, why? For our sins. Well, where do you get that from? In accordance with the Scriptures. We can talk about lots of things that are true, but if we leave out what's of central importance, we're missing something. We're missing something vital and central. And I know that some of this is a reaction because some of our forebearers and some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are maybe a little bit too eager to share with other people how much of sinners they are. Some of our brothers and sisters maybe are acting like Pharisees. I know that sin is not a popular subject, but it's central to the gospel and it's what makes the good news so good. When, when Jesus is talking about the mission of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel in chapter 16 and verse 8, we're not going to go there, you can read it later. It says that when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I understand that there's a reaction against those who are so offensive that they cloud the goodness of God, that, that people cannot see the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. But that offensiveness, that cannot be removed completely. Honestly, our attempts sometimes to remove all the offensiveness from the gospel and the message of the cross and the message of the scriptures, oftentimes they just make the whole thing boring. They take all the drama out. And I'm going to just, just submit to you that there's lots of other places besides a church to find community. And I'm going to even suggest that we don't, people don't need Jesus to feel loved. I don't need the church to give me a sense of mission and identity. There's lots of other places where you can, you can find that. You can construe that all on your own. But I am convinced that in Christ alone is the forgiveness of sins. I'm a, I'll read from my homeboy who's been waiting on deck. Martin Luther, this guy. He's a, who's honestly a mixed bag sometimes, but one thing he gets is sin and righteousness. It's apparent that not despair, but rather hope is preached when we are told that we are sinners. Such preaching concerning sin is a preparation for grace. Yearning for grace wells up when recognition of sin has arisen. A sick person seeks the physician when he recognizes the seriousness of his illness. Therefore, one does not give cause for despair or death by telling a sick person about the danger of his illness, but in effect, one urges him to seek a medical cure. To say that we are nothing and constantly sin when we do our best, when we do the best we can do does not mean that we give cause for people to despair unless they're fools. Rather, we make them concerned about the grace of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. I take this seriously and maybe a little bit too serious because it's personal to me. I didn't run into the church seeking refuge because I liked the music here. And I didn't come because you guys had something resembling snacks. I came to the church looking because I was convinced that it was here that the gospel message, through the gospel alone, I could find forgiveness for my many sins. There's other places to find community. There's other ways to feel loved and, and, and have a sense of purpose, of mission. But this is it. This is what the church has that nothing else can offer. It is the forgiveness of sins. And so today, as we come to the Lord's table, as we come for communion, I don't want anyone to be walking around with this black cloud of condemnation hanging over their head. If God is going at great lengths to show us our sins, it's not so that he can leave us there. That's missing the point. I want you to bear in mind Jesus' words when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Half the battle is realizing that we are lacking and we need to be filled. No one eats because he's already full, but rather he recognizes that he's empty and he yearns and he desires to be filled. And when we come into the presence of God to his table, we have nothing to give but thanks. We come empty, looking to be filled. The Lord's Supper is not a meal for righteous people, but it is a meal for people who despair of their own unrighteousness. And they hunger and thirst for the righteousness that comes through Christ. And it comes indeed through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the glorious news of the gospel that your righteousness does not stand over against us, but is now for us. That in Christ Jesus, your righteousness is not a demand, but has become a donation. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to make Make your will and make your, just make your home in our lives and build us up and, and, and break us in spots that we might need to be broken and heal us in ways that we need to be healed and work it out in us. Fulfill in us the righteousness of Christ bit by bit. That if we fall, we may by your power get back up again. And walk by your power and your grace for your glory. We ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.